Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Maxine Beniba-Clark is a prize-winning Australian writer, essayist and slam poetry champ of Afro-Caribbean descent, with a newly released poetry collection, Carrying the World, and an upcoming memoir, The Hate Race. Tusiata Avia is a leading Pacific poet who has travelled the world with her one-woman show, Wild Dogs Under My Skirt, and launches her new collection, Faleaitu Spirit House and Festival Week. These two formidable talents discuss their lives, their drives and cultural amalgamations. We hope you enjoy this session. Tānofa, tānofa lava, tēnā koutou katoa, ai Selena. Um, my name is Tusiata Avia, and this session is Spirit House Foreign Soil with Maxine Benabar Clark and myself. And I'm going to do the housekeeping thing um, before I introduce Maxine to you. Uh, anyone whose phone rings during this session has to buy <laughs> lunch for everyone in this room. <laughs> So I would suggest that you double-check those phones, and Robert, Maxine's phone is in your bag, so can you turn that baby off? Um, We will have time for uh, questions at the end of the session, and there are microphones, one way over there, and one over there, and you can make an orderly line that will snake out the door across Altair Square and down Queen Street. Um, And please try and keep your um, PhD theses (laughs) kind of questions for maybe at the book signing table. Um, We do want to hear them, but can you keep your questions kind of concise so the people snaking down Queen Street will get a chance to ask some questions too. Okay, so uh, welcome everyone. Um, so Maxine Vanneva Clark, um, I'm going to talk about her like she's not here, which I always think is a weird way of beginning these things, but I'm going to roll with it. Um, is a multi-award winning rin- writer, not runner. <laughs> definitely not, definitely runner, not. Maybe runner, maybe um, runner. Poet, slam champion, memoirist, and soon she adds a children's book to her list of publications. She has three collections of poetry. Gil Scott Heron is on parole, Nothing Here Needs Fixing, and the newly released and really amazing Carrying the World. Her heart-opening and heart-piercing book of short fiction, which is extraordinary, Foreign Soil has won a long list of awards, including the Victoria Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Award, the Indie Award for Debut Fiction, and the ABIA Award for Best Literary Fiction. And her highly anticipated memoir, The Hate Race, which just gives you goosebumps hearing the title, is due out in August. So it's my honour and privilege, Maxine, to welcome you to this session and to the festival and to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, okay. um, before I even let her get a chance to get a word in, I promise I won't be like this. Um, one of the things that usually happens in those um, introductions, especially if you're a person of colour, is that your heritage, your ethnicity is pigeonholed in some kind of way. So I get Tusiata Avia Pacific poet, Tusiata Avia Samoan poet, Tusiata Avia New Zealand Samoan poet, and none of those boxes feel great to me. Um, because I always feel like I'm being pigeonholed, interpreted um, by the literary establishment and made the other. So I thought that might be kind of a, um, a nice place to start. What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
You know, as you said, being a writer of colour, um, you know, writing in Australia or in New Zealand is that um, you're constantly positioned as you know, people need to identify what you are and what your heritage is almost before they'll engage with your work. So, you know, I tend to say that I'm an Australian poet of Afro-Caribbean descent. Um, and the Australian poet is, is the important bit. Um, but I, I kind of feel like once people have placed you then you can get on with the business of sharing your work. And it's kind of a, it's not a great position to be in. I feel like we all should just be writers or poets. It shouldn't really matter where we're from. But I think particularly poetry is such a personal thing. Um, and a lot of our work includes our histories. So in, in a sense, it's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, yeah it's one of those um, unavoidable kind of evils, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but I don't mm. know, something inside me prickles, yeah. you know, every time. Um, so one of the amazing things for those of you who um, have read um, Maxine's work you'll be familiar with and one of the amazing things for me was um, your, your use of voice um, and in foreign soil particularly you know you um, you speak in all these different voices um, from Jamaican to Sudanese to and the white Australian um, to this New Orleans Southern American voice. Um, what what is your kind of relationship with those voices? Um, I think for me, um, you know, I come from, and, and that's partly why I, I guess I identified so much with your work um, in, in Spirit House um, and Wild Dogs Under My Skirt, is that, you know, we're both kind of children of the diaspora. You know, we have these various um, threads of history in our families. And for me, I was born in Australia. My parents were born in the West Indies, but raised in London. Um, so essentially, they're, they're Londoners. And then further back in our history, my ancestors came from Africa. And so um, for me, my writing really covers that, the black diaspora, you know, which includes the Western world. And it includes these various um, vernaculars um, that have come out of that colonization process. So things like, you know, the Southern American dialect or Jamaican patois, or, you know, I don't like to call it broken English because I think that's rather condescending, but English as a second language, the way that we approach English is completely different. Um, and I think I've told Tusiata I'm going to be very selfish and um, there are some poems I want to hear her read <laughs> from Spirit House. So I would yeah, love... Like 20 minutes long. <laughs> I, I would love to, I think, on that subject, hear you right. read from... Um, <laughs> segue, segue. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a poem that I thought kind of really covered that experience of, um, you know, kind of different Englishes. Um, mm -hmm and the way that we <laughs> hijack the session. <laughs> you know, the way that I guess we deconstruct English yeah. um, and, and are taught that there is a standard English and that if we depart from that, you know, as poets and as, as um, you know, people in, in contemporary Western literature, we're somehow um, lesser writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I could just go on a whole, a whole thing. But I'll read the poem, eh? Um, so I won't give you a great big... There's a, a, a big backstory, but I won't give you any of it. All I'll tell you is that um, the word Vasenga means um, class. Vasenga, the revolution is coming. Missionary. This is a picture of a basket. What is this? Children. This is a picture of a basket. Missionary. This is a basket. What is this? Children. This is a picture of a basket. Missionary, this is a basket. What is this? 
This is a picture of a basket. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't think I've ever read that okay. aloud before. Yeah. I saw the capitals at the end and I went, oh yeah, that's right. I've got to yell at one. Um, it's funny because, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, those heritages and all those peoples and places that you've come from. And I got this picture in my mind of you know, literally this long train of people following you, mm. you know, mm. from all these different places, yeah. you know, from Australia, from Britain, from Jamaica, from Africa. And um, just thinking about how we carry all those people with us mm. and we carry their voices yeah. as well, whether, whether we know it or not, mm. I think. And so, like, you know, when you're writing, um, you have different processes around um, finding these voices, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are some voices that I'm more comfortable in than others. Um, you know, some of the work that I do um, that's in um, written in Jamaican patois is because I grew up, you know, going back to London, speaking to my grandparents who migrated from um, Jamaica and Guyana in the mid-50s and still had these very strong um, West Indian accents. And so that was a kind of easier process to, for me to say, can I imagine my gra how might my grandmother, if she was telling this story, how would she tell it? Um, Whereas, um, you know, when I, some of the stories that are set in Africa or with um, new African migrants to Australia, even though that's part of my larger story, you know, I am part of the African diaspora, um, I very much wrote those um, as an outsider. You know, I don't have that experience of coming directly from the African continent. So it was writing it um, instead of in a, a patois or a vernacular as um, English as a second language. So listening to the way that new migrants speak and, you know, I think, I think it's this really, um, we tend to think of uh, people who speak with accented English as having a, a lesser English, but I kind of find it fascinating that depending on where you come from, you put, you put your words in a different order or you stress different um, parts of a sentence and that has a lot to do with the way that you learn your first language. Um, but yeah, that, that sense of how close am I to this story um, and if I'm really close to the story in terms of my heritage and my experience, I feel more comfortable, for example, writing in a patois or writing in first person, whereas the further away it is from my experience, I kind of tend to, I guess, create a little bit of distance, you know, whether that's using third person or whether it's, um, there's a story about a, a young, um, Sri Lankan asylum seeker in, in my book. And with that story, um, I've been writing it for quite a while, um, written in third person to create that kind of distance. And I had been in detention centres, spoken to a lot of um, Sri Lankan people in my former, I uh, used to work in, in human rights. But I kept thinking, how do I access this voice as someone who hasn't really had this traumatic experience of being a refugee and journeying by boat? And the way that I accessed that was to create this um, second character who was a white Australian lawyer and who had had a similar experience to what I'd had working in human rights law. And she was kind of my in for that story, that this is the way that I can feel comfortable working with this material and understanding it. And so I tend to kind of, rather than saying, yes, I can use this voice even though I don't have any experience, how can I negotiate it so that I feel comfortable working with the material? Yeah, I mean, that story for me too is the most heart-piercing story. And it, I think... Um, it was the one that followed me about, you know, I would be looking over my shoulder um, when I was, you know, putting my eyeliner on, you know, and I could see, um, you know, I could see that boy in the detention centre and the, I'm not going to ruin the ending for you, but the, the ending is so, um, so vivid, 
and my mind and so heart-piercing, you know. And and interestingly, you know, in terms of voice, because um, I kind of feel like there's kind of like a continuum going on where, um, like in a story, like... Um, and now I'm going to grapple for which story it was. Big, Big Island, you know, your, your narrator speaks in patois as well as your characters. And then in um, The Stilt Fisherman, you know, you, you don't even try to, you know, use that voice. And, it do, and it's really interesting because there's that big, you know, that big kind of continuum, eh? Yeah. Um, so I'm just thinking about, you know, your work with refugees and the fact that you've written this book, Foreign Soil, you know, about people on the edges, you know, about people that a lot of mainstream society don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said something somewhere about... Um, making the hearts of readers fuller and more generous and about um, creating some kind of compassion and care and connectivity to these people. And that's, um, that feels like a really important part of what you do, you know. Like it really does open your heart and it pierces it, but it opens your heart as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that for me, um, you know, in a sense, even though foreign soil is set all over the world, um, it has that common, you know, it's about the human experience. It's about the way that we treat each other as people. It's about, um, you know, the various um, conflicts that we have, personal and otherwise, that lead to us being in these difficult situations. Um, and I think that was also, for me, what I, what I loved about your work, is that these characters that you use, um, you know, whether it's kind of people in the family or, um, you know, people in the Samoan community, they, they're so vivid that even though they bring all of these histories with them, you're, you're essentially talking about the human experience. And I think that's the problem that, um, in Australia at least, um, readers often don't get past that, well, this is, a, this is a story that's set in Africa, maybe it's a little bit foreign to me, I don't know if I can connect with it. Um, and essentially, you know, they're all about, for me, the character comes first. Mm. Um, and I had an interesting experience. One of the stories in Foreign Soil is about a young white woman who migrates to Uganda, um, and she has this, you know, horrible African boyfriend who she... Um, you know, thinks maybe he's not horrible, maybe I'm just being racist kind of thing. And, and the, the, um, all the commentary around that story that came out was about, you know, this story is about like a reverse migration because she migrates to, she's the one who migrates to Africa rather than, and to me it was just a story about an abusive relationship. You know, it could have been happening in Outback Australia, it could have been happening in Christchurch, it could have been anywhere. Um, but it was that um, overtook you know, where it was set and the identities, the fact that I made the woman a white, young white woman, the guy an educated Ugandan doctor, for some reason, um, critics could not get past that. Um, do you find that? I mean, in terms of the critical reception of your work, that there's often more emphasis on the cultural aspect? Um, totally, you know, and it's something that, um, a good friend and I were discussing this morning, actually, about, you know, that othering, being othered all the time. Um, but knowing in actual fact that, you know, when you take your work out into the world, it's, it is universal, mm. you know, and you can stand with, you know, proper writers, you know, with everybody else, mm. you know, on your own merits of your work, because whatever angle you're coming at it from, it's human. It's about the human experience, you know. So, yeah, it pisses me off sometimes, mm. but, you yeah, <laughs> know. Um, and I think, um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we kind of uh, we were chatting about this the other day was about you know, how we access our own stories mm. and even how we access our own voices. 
Um, and, you know, one of my um, favourite um, pieces of... One of my favourite poems of yours is um, a poem from the new book, Carrying the World, called Demerara Sugar, and it just blew my mind. Um, and it's another one that's been following me about. You've got a lot of people following me about. Um, and there's a lot of people following you about. But, um, yeah, so maybe do you want to do you wanna read a bit of that? Yeah, I, I don't want to be really bossy and tell you what bit of it to read, because it's really, it's a long poem. Um, but you know the... The um, part seven. <laughs> <laughs> That's very general. Yeah, you know, uh, but you know what? <laughs> just go with just just go with what feels good for you. <laughs> I will. Uh, so Demerara Sugar. It's a suite of poems I wrote um, about a trip I made to London to research my family history. And this poem comes probably about halfway through the suite of poems. The train to Liverpool winds through green meadows, past cedar brick houses, square white-rimmed windows, straight-backed girls in equestrian helmets, quaint villages with spindly trees, thick fog hovers over and holds. Trains, pubs, ornate finishes, concrete municipal buildings, sandstone facade, Penny Lane. On the Beatles' trail, all the locals nod and say, as if for sure they know our tourist game. Down Water Street, my son and daughter, in snow boots and Kathmandu, past West Africa House, across the gorge, down to the waterfront, hunched against the wind and blain, Penny Lane. Zero degrees, another portside coffee cart, maritime hot chocolate, and the woman who serves us says, snow has just been forecast. Says your children, they are not in school, looks at me the way they all do. It is summer holidays where we come from, I say. She is wondering where from we possibly came. <laughs> At the International Museum of Slavery, I plug the children in. iPad, headphone splitter, box of Skittles to share. The first booth wraps all the way around. Waves slam on the ship hull. Wailing buries me beneath the black Atlantic. There is blood everywhere, a screams everywhere. The black Atlantic pushes me beneath and I can't breathe. Jesus, I can't breathe. Simulated slave ship, the placard says. 351 chained in 14 meters by eight and the journey it took 49 days. Heartache, the madness, the mama up on the morning of the auction, the being sure they are not crying, the braiding hair, dress them nice, you hear, be sure they fetch a good price, big rations if your picnic fetch a few, maybe you could work up in the big house, I bet you'd like that, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Be sure they don't cling on or wail, see? Metal instruments in glass cases, branding iron remnants of dead flesh, Metal muzzles, should you speak, out of turn. Tongue cutter, chain gang coffle. I shackled him in wooden stocks by the hands, neck and feet so as to immobilize him. He was taken out to the field and painted with molasses from head to toe. The runaway was left to lie there for several weeks. This is not a replica, original item, testimonial. My children, they are hungry. The Skittles have run out, and they have come to find me. Mama, Mama, my daughter is saying. She can't see me, but I am standing right here. Mama, Mama, she can't see me, right here. In green meadows past cedar brick houses, square right white-rimmed windows, straight-backed girls in equestrian helmets, quaint villages with spindly trees, a thick fog hovering over and holding. In heartache, the madness, the mama up on the morning of the auction, the 14 by 8 by 49 by 351 chained, I am standing, my God, right here on Liverpool's Penny Lane.
feel a bit catatonic after that one. <laughs> Is that not the one you were going to read? No, no, no. It's good. Um, it's kind of like a, 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 a gut punch mm-hmm. at the end there on Penny Lane, eh? Because how many of you think of Penny Lane like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Penny Lane, na, 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 na. Yeah. you know, it's um, a long way from Penny Lane, right? Um, and this was part of a, a research trip you did, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh. So I, I did a research uh, trip as part of a fellowship um, in Australia for biography. Um, and the idea was, you know, when I, when I started on my memoir, as, as we always do when we start literary projects, I had these great ambitions that I was going to do a roots-type project. I'm going to trace my lineage right back to Africa and I'm going to do it in 18 months, you know. <laughs> and so I ended up, the trip ended up really being the start of something which will hopefully be a future project of actually now that I have written a memoir about growing up in, in um, white middle-class Australia, to hopefully, you know, now go and research a little bit more about that history. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, that that whole thing about researching, you know, about finding out about ourselves, you know, um, and, you know, I've often said to people, you know, I grew up in Christchurch. Mm. I didn't grow up at my grandmother's knee, you know, on a mat in Samoa hearing traditional Mm. stories, you know. Um, and even though those voices are inside me, um, I don't know those stories. Mm. I've had to research those stories myself. And what's really ironic is um, the research that I've done around, um, uh, you know, Samoan um, legends and that kind of stuff have very often been from um, German... Um, ethnographers and missionaries writing in the in the 1800s, you know, because that's the only written stuff you can get, you know, and 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 little bits that you get from here and there. So um, yeah, that that whole thing about researching yourself, your background, that trail of people behind you. Yeah. Yeah. And and how you you know how you find that and how you tap into it, eh? yeah. and uh, tying it in, you know, trying to tie it in with the present and negotiate, I guess, the past. Mm. Y- you know, how do I, um, you know, this is me as I am now. You know, similarly, I grew up in a very kind of white village area in in Australia. Um, and I, you know, when I was, um, I don't know how many of you saw Tusiata's sh- uh, show, theatre show, Wild Dogs Under My Skirt. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, there is a copy of it on YouTube, so you need to watch it. Um, but you know, it does this phenomenal job of tying those histories in with the present, you know, with characters that exist in your life, and um, you know that that, as you said, that bring this long line of histories with them. Um, and I think, um, you know, when you're an Anglo writer, you're almost assumed to have a, br- a blank slate. You know, you don't. You can just write anything you want. You don't carry that, what the establishment sees as this baggage of, of your history um, with you. Um, and so, you know, can you talk a little bit about how you um, include that past in your work and kind of um, meld yeah. it with the present? Or maybe read us another poem <laughs> that yeah. illustrates that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's really interesting about that past because for me, um, you know, there there are different kinds of pasts, right? Um, and there's the there's the old pre-Christian um, past of of Samoa that's that's suppressed that we know very little about, you know, and. Um, that's what I've had to like go out and research and try and find out about. And you know, when I've asked my dad, you know, he said, "Oh no, no, we don't believe in that stupid stuff," you know. Yeah. But then we'll be driving past a place in Samoa, and he'll point it out and say, "Oh, you know, that's where um, you know this certain eight or, or spirit lives, and yeah. you know, it does this and this and this." So you know. You can kind of gather the stories, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, but then you've got to do this research as well. So it's a strange kind of a thing. 
But then there's another part of it, I think, too, which is I just know that that I know something on a DNA level, Mm. you know? Mm. I know something on a deep level that's in there. Mm. And, um, And poetry for me helps me access that, I think, you know. Um, I, at the gala the other night, I kind of talked about this experience of poetry sometimes feeling to me like channeling, you know, um, like channeling into into something that's um, a little bit out of this realm, you know, and a bit um, a bit mysterious, you know. And it's it's having the feeling that something you know is there, but yeah. not knowing what it is. And opening yourself and allowing that to, you know, to come out. Mm. Um, yeah, I might do a bit of yoga right now. <laughs> um, but <laughs> no, I just—I always do that self-deprecating thing. It's ridiculous. Um, but you want me to read something, right? Yes, please. Yeah. Please, anything um, you want. <laughs> do you want me to read that? Um, Yes, there was one in particular. Yeah. You know which one it was. Covenant, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, yeah, Covenant, yeah. yeah. Um, so, this morning on Kim Hill, um, this book, Spirit House, is being reviewed, and my mum kept sending me texts this morning <laughs> going, you know, it's going to be reviewed at quarter to 12. And I'm like, I don't want to... You know, the last thing I want to do is listen to a review of my book, you know, before I, I come up here. Oh, was it good? <laughs> Don't worry, I would have heard the negative sentence. And I would have carried that around with me for the rest of my life. But um, one of the things that... And, and I'm doing a... Um, it's not all about me. Not, I, I promise. I'm doing a... Um, uh, a live interview tomorrow on Standing Room Only, and the the lovely producer wanted me to read a poem about my mum, which cast my mum in quite a bad light. And I said, yeah, and then I emailed her back, I said, no. I'm, it's one thing to put it in the book, it's a whole different thing to talk about it on national radio in front of, you know, all 14 of us that listen to national radio. Um, but, you know, the first part of my book is really personal. It's about my family, and I don't pull any punches, and I, I've talked to them, and they know that, um, you know, they don't always come out so great. This, this, this one is about my brother, and I, I didn't ask his permission. I just wrote this and put it in. And then I said to him the day before the launch, oh, bro, there's a... <laughs> There's a, um, there's a poem in there about you, but don't worry, because um, you come out looking good and I come out looking not so good. So uh, it's called Fianaina, which means covenant in, in Samoan, and there's, um, there's a, a Fianaina, a sacred covenant between brother and sister um, that, that um, has always existed. It's kind of long. Can we read the whole thing? All right. Fianaina, Covenant. I tell my brother about the boy at school. I make him tickle my back, and every time he stops, I tell him about the boy at school who can do it the best in the world. My brother and I are Siamese twins. I graft him to me his pyjama holes to my buttons, and we sleep face to face. When they try to lift me out, I keep my eyes shut. My mother has to call for help. The surgeon is delayed till morning. Dad's army. Grandpa comes on Thursdays when they are at counselling. He watches Dad's army. My brother and I eat pancakes. I tell him how stupid he is, how much I hate him, and how I have hollowed out little cabins in the pancakes and filled them with ants. (laughs) Love boat. At 7pm on Wednesday night, when the love boat is on, they ask me who I think should get the house. 
I make my brother an ice cream sundae with secret passages for the resistance to hide in. I fill them with curry and chili and shoe polish. My brother goes missing. I check backyard, front yard, park, neighbours, wardrobes, toilet, bathroom, wash house. I know deep down he is dead and I am a bad person. I even ring my mum at Weight Watchers. He turns up in the warming cupboard. My, mother does, my, my brother doesn't know what a magistrate is. We go to the Muppet movie and then Ice Castles and then Bambi again. My brother eats too many ice castles and falls asleep. We walk back to the courthouse, which is by the tea rooms, and I eat a custard square. My brother goes next door. The girlfriend comes round and won't go away and threatens to cut her wrists with the windows or mayonnaise jars. I tell my brother to go next door and stay there I tell the girlfriend to go ahead and kill herself, but first, just get in the taxi, get in the taxi. The day we meet our other brother, at Bishopdale Shopping Mall, we all look the same, but he looks more like our father and tells us his life is fine, as if we might be robbers who will break into his house and remove everything he has. I take my friend round to my brother's. I'm nervous about seeing him on my own, but he's hungover and gentle and shows us the tiny box of ashes. His wife gets home with a new jacket. She puts the box back on its stand. So you've shown them our son, she says and rips off all the buttons. Um, so, you know, kind of on that thing about, you know, writing the personal, you know, and writing about our families, yeah. um, you have this memoir coming out, The Hate Race, and, um, you know, you've written about, obviously, your life with the memoir mm -hmm. and, and your family. And, um, you know, how is that, knowing that that's about to hit the, <laughs> the shelves very soon? Well, I mean, I think uh, as writers, um, in a way, you have to make a decision to surrender to, to whatever comes. Um, and for me, um, writing the memoir was about setting parameters that I was comfortable with. Um, and I wanted to write a book about um, race in Australia, growing specifically growing up black and white middle-class Australia in the 80s and 90s. And so I guess the way I negotiated that was to, um, the, the story's kind of made up of um, short vignettes or chapters, and each of them contains kind of a, a different interaction around race. Um, and so my family is very much, you know, they're, a, they're the framing device and they're in it. But a lot of these interactions, as you can imagine, happen at school, you know, with the teacher or, you know, like, for example, in, in gym class, you know, I had this um, very kind of officious Eastern European gymnastics coach who always used to say to me, tuck your bottom in, you know, tuck your bottom when you're on the balance beam. And I was like, I can't tuck my bottom in. <laughs> You know, so there's some kind of very, very amusing things like that as well. And so I guess the way that I've negotiated is to, yes, my family is in this book and there is a lot of my family in this book, but ultimately it's not really about them or about me. It's about the broader issue of race relations, specifically in Australia, and what it means to live in a brown body in a majority white country. And um, keeping that in mind when I'm writing it, that yes, this is a highly personal story. Yes, there are a lot of people in this book that maybe won't be particularly happy with, <laughs> you know, with the stories in it, but the purpose was not you know, to, to lay my family's secrets on the table. You know, the, the purpose is, well, these are stories that need to be told and stories that in Australia 
really have gone untold for so long. So I guess as as um, an artist, you kind of, you know, in a way rationalise that guilt by saying, look, I think this is a worthy story and I think it's important enough that I need to not, not pull any punches regardless of, of what comes out of it. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, it really requires courage, yeah. right? And... Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of terrifying. I find it kind of terrifying. Um, more now, actually, now that it's actually here as a book, you know. Um, and I, you know, um, I've always felt like I have to tell the truth, you know. Um, and I think of writing, I think for myself that part of my job as a writer is to bring the unseen out into the open um, and part of bringing the unseen into the world is um, bringing it out of the dark places you know and letting the light shine, the light shine on it even if it's not um, even if it's painful even if it's not attractive you know um, and, you know, I've written a lot around, um, you know, some of the issues that really matter to me around, you know, violence and around abuse and around, um, you know, misuse of, of power. Um, and that's been, you know, from um, in the Samoan culture all the way to, you know, the situation um, with Gaza and Israel and everyone who backs them, you know. So that's kind of how I see, you know, my my job as well. Yeah. How about you? What do you do? You have that kind of. Yeah, I think I have. I have similar motivations for writing, mm. in that um, I, you know, I think. I mean, people say all writers are political writers, but I think for me, to actually have that drive to pick up the pen, there needs to be something that I want to change or something really significant that I want to say. And, um, you know, it's kind of this irony that I think if, 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 you know, everything in the world was perfectly well, I just wouldn't write at all, you know. Um, but I, there was a poem in, um, I think it was Spirit House, was it? Um, that really made me think, it seemed to me really similar to a poem in, um, in my book, Carrying the World, where it's, it's called I Cannot Write a Poem About Gaza. And, um, and there's a book, um, uh, there's a poem in, in my book, the last poem, called What Are You Going to Say?, where I talk about this um, siege that happened in, in a shopping mall in, in Nairobi where about 67 people were shot. And people, at the time I was writing this political poetry blog and people wrote to me saying, what are you going to say? You know, are you going to write something about this? And that kind of weight of you want to write about this, you want to say something but sometimes it's, you know, sometimes you feel like there are no words mm. or you feel like, oh, should I really, can I really write about this? Um, and so I wondered if you might maybe read the first section. I'll, I'll only read it if you read. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens that I have a little bit of paper and that, and that what are you going to say? So what, what way round shall we do it? You go first. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you my we'll one. Swap. <laughs> All right. Um, where will I go to? Okay. I'll just. It's kind of a long poem, but I won't um, read the whole thing. No, I certainly won't. I'll just read you uh, the first couple of stanzas. <clears throat> I cannot write a poem about Gaza. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because I cannot eat a whole desert. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because I cannot go to bed with the stiff little babies, the bodies of children. There is no room for the little lost limbs, the disembodied arms yanked off like parts in a doll hospital. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because if I speak up for the bodies of babies, for the pieces of children, for the women pulling out their own eyes, you will call me anti-Semitic and I must allow the blood of thousands to absolve me. 
Thank you. <laughs> okay. So this is what are you going to say? People, they have been writing to me. Where are you? What are you going to say about what just happened, about the Westgate Mall siege, like they think I am the oracle or something? Oh, it is flattering. And believe me, some days I would roar and sharpen these claws to knife point. Some days I would wear this accolade like the mane it should well be. But then I get to thinking, I might not want to know that 67 people are dead in a shopping mall in Nairobi. Maybe they need a poem to make sense of it all, but just maybe I don't want or have to be the one to write it. Well, I'm just looking at that clock ticking away and it just feels as if um, we've only gotten started, right? <laughs> but um, I'm thinking that you guys might like to ask some questions. No? Okay, then. <laughs> well. <laughs> All right. So um, if people would like to ask some questions, you can make your way to the microphone. Quite sharply, probably. <laughs> um, we're waiting hi. for the... Hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> Thank you very much for your beautiful talk and poetry. Um, I'm just really curious, when you were little, both of you, what first brought you into contact with poetry or inspired you to use poetry as your particular medium of art? <laughs> um, actually, something quite weird. I um, discovered poetry when I was 10. I had this hideous teacher um, called Mrs. Bell, and she was really awful. I wonder if she's still alive. She, she, she was awful, but she made us write poetry and stories all the time. And she was really mean to me, but she recognised something in me and I'm grateful to her. I feel as if I've had some kind of like, I don't know, half demon, half angel sent to me back then, you know, to, um, that's when I started. Because I had someone um, give me the opportunity and then recognise it in me and in her really nasty way, encourage me. Yeah, yeah. I think for me it was, you know, when I was growing up, it was still the age of the cassette tape. And, um, and you know, the, the great thing that you don't get now when you download music, those little lyric books, you know, you get, and it was like little poetry books. And at the time, I don't think I realised it, but I've just spent hours reading through these little lyric sheets and, and learning lyrics. And now, you know, you kind of realise where some of the rhythm in your work and things like that come from is, is the, essentially they were poetry books, you know. Um, and so for me, I think that was probably the start of, of my love of short form. Yeah. And if any of you have the opportunity, um, there are a lot of um, poems on SoundCloud, right? Yeah. Yeah, if you Google anyway, you'll find a lot of uh, recorded poems of um, Maxine's and you can really hear that musical quality in the, in the, um, in the poems and you can, you can hear it on the page as well, you know, that, that influence of, their, of that musical um, and, and the refrains that, you know, come in and out of the poems. Um, oh, we have another person. Hi. Hi, uh, hi. Hello, all right. Um, you're both fab. You're both really, really good. You make me really happy. I've not. I've, I finished uni like three years ago, so this is like my first poetry lecture thing in ages. I'm so happy. Um, <laughs> you were talking about identity, and you don't like being pigeonholed in, like, in a like you know. So you don't want to be known as the Samoan poet or you know the Caribbean, Australian poet. And I in my own way, like I, I like being, I quite like being identified as a queer poet and I would, I love that idea that I will have a, like if I do have something out there it will be, you know, a queer poet because I find a little bit of pride and strength in it um, 
And do you, at the same time, that you don't like being pigeonholed, do you also like recognize how important it is to have labels so that like, you know, young African, you know, descended women or young Samoan women who like poetry can like, you know, they know where to go to find you and to feel like there's no one in school who knows about what, what I'm going through. But this woman here, she's written a book of poems, and I can and I get this, and this is really good. And the pain of being pigeonholed does that like subside, with knowing that you're you're like this little world that this girl can go in, or this whoever you know needs to identify with something can go in, you know, in a, in in reality. Anyway, I'm talking too much. You go. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, you know, yes, it is. For me, it is really important. You know, that's why I've loved kind of being involved in the school sessions and things like that in this festival is to to hopefully bring up some people behind you. You know, where there may have been um, no one. You know, I, I did an interview with the BBC recently, and they said, you know, who were the other great Afro-Caribbean Australian writers? And I went. <laughs> <laughs> I said, there's no one, and they said, there can't be no one. I said, well, I think I might have heard of them if they were around, you know? <laughs> but, you know, there, there is that sense that, yes, you do want people to acknowledge where you're from, but I think the problem is, um, you know, you get... When you are pigeonholed, because we're working, in, you know, it's unavoidable, the, the literary... Well, it is avoidable, but the unavoidable fact is the literary establishment is very white both here and in Australia. And so what happens is, and I have my publisher, Australian publisher here today, but you know, I said, when my foreign saw come out, I'll be, I said, you'll, you'll get invites to festivals and it will be me, an indigenous poet, Alice Pung, and maybe an African-American poet, and the topic will be writing otherness or you know, diversity. You know, and the great thing about this panel is that that's not, the box that it's been put in, you know? Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's what happens with audiences, is that they see this as, oh, I'm not sure, you know, I'd kind of rather go and see something that's just about novels or just about short fiction. So I think while it's good to identify and to say, yes, I'm really proud to be up here and representing people with similar histories and I hope that I'm an inspiration, the problem is that that uh, pigeonholing has wider implications, which means that your work is less available, less less promoted. Mm. Yeah, what she said. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, um, I think you made a good point. Um, I'll pigeonhole you as. Um, what, what's that accent? <laughs> Scouse, yeah, <laughs> Liverpool. I was gonna say Mr. Penny Lane, but I don't mean, I don't mean like you're a slaver or anything. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. Pr don't get me wrong. I'm proud to be a Pacific poet. I'm proud to be a Samoan poet. I'm passionate about young um, Pacific people having access to poetry and everything. Um, and, you know, unlike you, Maxine, I'm lucky that I, you know, I, I, I have a, a long list of other Samoan and Pacific poets and writers that I can, that I can point to. Although, you know, um, you know, I love you guys. You're, you know, you're really awesome. I love people that come to poetry festivals. However, have a look around <laughs> and see how many brown faces you can see at this festival, you know? I mean, it's a certain demographic, right? You know, this is the biggest Polynesian city in the world, you know, just saying. So we really rapidly um, Coming to the end of um, of this, is there something that you would like to read? Something you'd like to say? Um, I might do a very short reading from. Um, we started out talking about dialect and different voices. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a story in here um, that I've written in in um, Jamaican patois, and I'll just read the first paragraph, I guess. And. I'll, it's written on the page. I guess when you look at it, it potentially doesn't look like English when you look at it because it's written phonetically so that when you read it, 
you hear that accent in your head. So this is the start of a story called Big Island with no D on the end. Nathaniel Robinson lean out over the water, shaking head and look, look down past him grubby dungarees and him heavy leather work boot and into the water below. Him a large man, Nathaniel. Big, big bone, like him bloodline done come right down from Goliath in the Bible or something. Large, and if you now know how gentle the man is at heart, then maybe him even seem a little ominous, standing on the pier like this, with him black shadow casting down over the light blue of the bay water below. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking about, um, read something, the, read something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about what you said at, um, the Achebe quote that you have right at the beginning of foreign soil, which says, let no one be fooled by the fact that we may write in English for we intend to do unheard of things with it. And I think, you know, like I could go on for hours just about um, being unheard. And, you know, this voice and our voices being unheard of to the, you know, to the establishment. And, you know, like I've read, um, I've read um, reviews and stuff that say, you know, start, stuff like, oh, the dialect is jarring, it's laborious. It's because you know, that voice isn't in their heads and they feel like the only voice is the standard English voice, you know, and I'm like, what are you mental? I can hear that, <laughs> you know, I can hear that. All right, so... Um, Will you give us one last poem, oh, please? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what shall I do? Have you got a, a request? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, <laughs> after paradise. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Is that all right? It's cool. Yeah. You're asking me to read like poems that I've virtually never read um, <laughs> before, which is awesome. Um, and this is a tiny bit of backstory. My uh, just before my father migrated to New Zealand um, nearly 60 years ago. He, he was an extra in a film called Return to Paradise, which was basically like a star vehicle for the ageing Gary Cooper. And it, it was filmed in our village, and all the extras were like my grandparents and um, my dad. And um, so it's, it's kind of with that in mind, and it's called After Paradise. When the film crews left, and he'd gone long before for boom sur Paris. One of the house girls took to wearing her clothes loose and sleeping late. Via Balangi, they called her. Bad example, the Falutua said. One of the boys found it, lying in the forest, very small, very white, with strange blue eyes. And on that spooky note, <laughs> um, I would like to thank you so much, Maxine. Thank you. Um, it's been a real, real honour for me to... Um, to get to know you through your work and now to get to know you in person. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'm just going to be fangirling all over you <laughs> yeah. for, for, for some it's time funny. to come, I reckon. I think it's very rare to be programmed with someone <laughs> and you get sent their work and it's just like... <gasps> yeah, <laughs> so we were scared absolutely. to meet in case we'd both mutually faint or something like that, you know? <laughs> but it's turned out okay, we've held ourselves together. Yeah. <laughs> so Maxine and I will be mutually fainting. Um, <laughs> 
at the book signing table. So if you want to come and tell us um, your master's thesis title, or buy a book, um, or have a book signed, the book signing table is on the right-hand side of the bookstore to the rear of the foyer. I can't see that in my head, but that's where it is. So again, Papatote Le Lava, Maxine, thank you, audience. Our 2016 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.